if we all agree that this is an important technology, right, important enough to block, and then it should be important enough to protect and important enough to support. And I think that is the thing that we're really missing right now. Yen Zhang invests in microelectronics for InQtel, the CIA's venture arm. Yes, that's right. The CIA has a venture arm named after James Bond's Q. I don't, like, it's both cool and cringy. I'm going to go for it. Yen has a PhD in electrical engineering, spent time at DARPA, and on the Hill as a science fellow. Yen, welcome to China Talk. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for having me. So what is InQtel? Sure. Yeah. Oh, well, InQtel, we, so the way you described it, I think we, we would maybe re- redefine what you said. We are associated with the CIA, and we were founded by the CIA. 21 years ago. And I think a lot of folks think of us as the venture arm for, for the CIA, but in reality, we are a nonprofit uh, organization. And as such, we actually support more than just the CIA at this point. We actually support eight different agencies and within not only in the intelligence community, but broader in, in other organizations that deal with national security. And so for us, that really means is that we think of ourselves more of a, a strategic investor. And I think there's an important distinction, especially in the field, when you think about what a large strategic investor would invest in versus what a, a, a venture capitalists would invest in and, and some of their motivations. And specifically for us, we're more interested in helping our government customers find the right technologies and be able to leverage those technologies. At times, that might mean that from a business point of view, this is not the companies that we select might not be the best business opportunity, but we look at it from the technology and from the mission and use those as a broader scope and lens in terms of deciding what we uh, engage with. So how do you guys split up your time between talking to your clients within the U.S. government and running around San Diego trying to find the next hot microelectronics startup? Yeah, we... So we, well, pre-COVID times, we would have access to go into into the government facilities to talk to our customers, being the fact that our headquarters is in Virginia, so that's where I am based. A lot of our customers in, in the government are in that, in that space, and having that face-to-face talk is, is important to better understand what they're working on. We also have two other offices in the United States, one in the Boston Waltham area to really engage with some of those innovators and entrepreneurs coming out of you know the MIT and, and Harvard and just that the scene up there. But also we have a, another office uh, in Menlo Park where that's where most of our investment um, partners live. And, and obviously that gives us access to a lot of the venture networks. So I think geographically that kind of helps us situate not only with entrepreneurs in the West Coast, but also with a lot of our government folks here on the East Coast to help drive and understand better what are they interested what 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 problems would they like to solve and that that you know evolves every year right as technology and use cases and situations change their needs change as well as the situation awareness we provide them changes in the sense that new companies come up all the time and new technologies and we want to make sure that we are relaying that information back as well and say hey this might not be on your radar, but maybe it should. And let's, let me tell you why. So we had Mike Brown of DIU on the podcast in late December. There are a number of figuring out how to bring private sector technology into the government is a longstanding challenge. I'm curious how you guys see yourselves in relation to the other government affiliated folks who are also running around Silicon Valley. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. This is such a an important area to be in. We think that the fact that others are doing, are looking at it from different perspectives, I think is important. We, we obviously feel like we offer a, a 
specific perspective and capabilities that we think the government should be you know, leveraging even further to, to be able to get the technologies and, that they need for their missions. What Micron Daily is doing is great in the way they interact with, with startups Look in having them help look at the DOD side of the, the, the house. Of course, we, we, are, we look more broadly. So we do have parts of the DOD as, as our customer base, but you know also parts in the, in the intelligence and also just law enforcement type of, um, of group. So we think we have a little larger aperture, right? And then our the way we look at technologies is slightly different. There's also the way that we can actually make equity-based investments, I think is, is one of those key differentiators that, that we have in the sense that that kind of gives us the ability to act like a venture capitalist or strategic investor, sit in the same kind of room, boardrooms, and have that uh, discussion with those folks at that level, which is, which, which is where the startups are playing, which is where kind of their boards are telling them what to do. And that situation awareness is, I think, important. And but I would be remiss not to mention other folks in government like what AFWorks is doing in the Air Force. We, we really like those guys. We think that the way that they are leveraging the SBIR program, SBIR is the Small Business Research Innovation Program. It is a program that for organizations or agencies that have a research budget, um, a percentage of that, of that research budget is taken off the top and work towards these grants for small, specifically for small businesses. And I think the government at this point defines them as a uh, 500 people or less. There's also certain categories for, I think it's like a veteran-owned, uh, female-owned, and in some of these special categories that there was preferential treatment for evaluations. But organizations like DARPA, NSF, NIH, right, lots of those organizations that have a research budget, have a, a separate office that then takes that, that cut off the top to, to deploy onto um, small businesses. There's been a lot of talk, I think, in the past of, are these programs interfacing with the right folks? Are they interfacing with the right startup entrepreneurs? Are entrepreneurs even interested in doing SBIR, right? If I have venture back funding, would I even want to mess around with doing government grants and, and auditing and all this stuff that's required for that? Or is that program made easy enough for me to do that with low overhead? So there's a lot of kind of operational efficiencies, I think, that could be that could be had. And I think AFWorks is doing really well in that. And also, a, giving them opportunity to find government customers and talk to them. There's all, we could go into that, but I think they're better <laughs> equipped to discuss that. But I think coming from, uh, as you mentioned, when I was at DARPA, obviously has an SBIR office as well. And we fund a lot of um, really innovative kind of startups, but it's also ones that have been around for a while. And I, I think the pejorative word would be SBIR mills, right? For folks that just don't have that intention of actually turning into a growth company, but more of just looking, taking that money to, to fund something to, do it again and go through the whole um, process. So we want to be supportive of the ones that are want to be growth companies, want to take something to into the commercial sector. And, and those there's there are ways that such as Incutel of, of identifying those companies and then helping them grow. I'm from the government and I'm here to help in Silicon Valley has been a tension point to say the least over the past, I don't know, say decade or two. What is your sense on the sort of relative willingness and resistance within the startup ecosystem more generally to get involved with, with government projects? And I'm curious if there's any difference on the software versus hardware side. Yeah, you will probably speak more on the hardware side than the, than the software side. Um, is predominantly that's where I invest in. I would say that this, there are concerns of government, but perhaps not in the ways that most people think. I think most people think about like Google's Project Maven kind of situation. But I think there, there are a lot of startups that do recognize the government as being an early adopter, right? A, an early validator of certain technology, especially in the really hard tech areas. You really do need someone who understands the regulatory landscape or who has 
ability to actually make a large capital investment. So it doesn't even have to be defense related. If you think about energy, energy related programs, what maybe what Bill Gates is trying to do with restarting nuclear, you really do need to have government involved yeah. in that, right? There's probably no way of doing that investment without having uh, those few folks at the table. And, and so I think uh, for certain fields, especially in the hardware, there's a recognition of that, right? If you have, for instance, a lot of the AI chips companies out there, do, do you recognize Facebook and, and Amazon might be a partner for their large data centers? But by the way, government also has large data centers. Right? They could be customers. So let's make sure that they're involved as well. So that's one. I, I think there's a there's another concern that they do have in, when when we say, hey, we're, we, well, we're not from the government for one. If we could get even bend the ear of the government, and I think some companies would, would say, hey, tell us about what's going on with this regula- regulatory thing. What's going on with CFIUS, which hopefully we could talk about yeah. later in the segment. But what's going on with, with China? I think now there's a recognition from a lot of the folks in the startup community that at least they have to be up on what's happening in, in policy world because that might trickle down and affect the way they do business. Having a hands-off and, and approach might not be good for business strategy going forward. Yeah, it's interesting sort of thinking about this in the context of the Chinese system and military civil fusion, where presumably whatever the InQtel is doesn't get like people don't turn them down a lot. I, it's an interesting feedback loop, right? Where the government, the the sort of like defense and intelligence communities have to be good customers to win over the support of to just catch the eye of these folks in the first place. Whereas in a different system where the sort of like tech transfer and you take this contract and you don't really have a choice is more of the dynamic than it's, well, anyways, you riff on that, yet. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. We pride ourselves on the, how hard we, we work and we actually have a full set of folks that whose job is to be that conduit into the government to say, is this working out for you? It might, are we going to successfully transfer this technology that we've invested in and make sure that that actually gets used in the right way? Give us feedback. Because a lot of the times the customer, not only the customer, the company wants the feedback, right? This is when you're starting a company, that feedback is probably like the most, a lot of folks are willing to actually sell a product at a loss if they could get feedback first, hmm. that, that initial kind of, is this working for you? Are we making the right messages? Because that drives this second generation. And if we could catch them at the right time, we provide some good insight from our government customers. Like, hey, this worked or it broke because I put it in, in, in this environment. And then and that's good insight for, for, for the company and for customers as well. And, and really, to, to you need to have folks to really engage in that. So we, we actually do, it's hands-on. And I think a lot of folks that when I was on the Hill, uh, Folks, the, the, the old timers, I think, that were working on manufacturing policy for the last 20, 30 years would say that this type of work is a contact sport, right? You need to be able to be there on the shop floor talking to the folks and saying, hey, how can we help you? What's going on here? So we feel to think of it as, as the same thing. We are, we are very hands-on on, on the solution transfer process. There are ways that I think if you look at what China is doing, that I think the example that comes to mind really is HSMC. That's really that recently came up, with. And, and for folks that aren't familiar, this is the they um, should be if they subscribe to the China Talk newsletter at chinatalk.substack.com. But anyways, continue yet? There you go. Yeah. So this is a, a just a, a semiconductor debacle, I think, and it really exemplifies what you were just saying, Jordan. That, that with China's push towards getting all hands on deck, government and and civil and everything within China to become semiconductor independent, as in throwing money and, and bankrolling any effort to actually get to that. Goal has led to sometimes a, a, a unmanaged expectation of how to actually get there. And Hongxing Semiconductor HSMC in Wuhan is example where you know a, a charismatic businessman overpromised and didn't quite understand the complexity of building a state of the art semiconductor facility. You know, <laughs> didn't they didn't kind of quite say, understand. Kind of... The guy didn't have a high school education. 
Yeah, it was the con it, it, of a it, lifetime. It, it, he he built a billion dollars out of out of the local out of the local Wuhan government. That's, that's right, and not only that, he was able to. What I thought was very striking is that he was able to recruit one of the top R and D directors at TSMC. And so this is, it, and and you could also argue, well, how is if if there's a, there's discussion of like how protected is TSMC technology and IP and folks from China, but the fact that this non-company, right, or, or almost a fake company is able to recruit a, a, a R&D director from that organization as it's one concerning. And and two, the the fact that they were able to get a, a tool, one of the key ways that the U.S. has been able to slow down Chinese development in some of these key areas is by saying, hey, you're going to have limited access to tools. One of the tools they would get, not a U.S. tool, the Dutch tool, it's called AS, by a company called ASML, makes the premier lithography tools. The, these are the, the tools you need to actually print out the, the semiconductor designs. They were able to get it, right? And they use that as collateral to get more money to fund the facility. But the fact they're able to get their hands on this machine was actually concerning as well. Let's talk a little more about the Chinese, sort of Chinese chip ambitions. SMIC also has a ton of ex-TSMC engineers this is not like pl- plenty of like more legitimate companies have been able to to recruit some of the best talent in in, no, in, in, in taiwan onto the mainland it's not just the not just the scammers who've been able to do it to to what extent is a rising chinese chip industry something that the u.s should be scared of in the first place the, the yeah. current discussion now is on supply chain security and making sure that if there's an earthquake or a war in taiwan the world doesn't come to a crashing halt but what also to what extent is like fears of becoming a more and more relevant global player something that the U.S. really should be all that worried about? Yeah, and I think you're you're seeing this like in just in general that the investments that we're talking about from the policy side of onshoring a lot of the semiconductor supply chain to the U.S. is partially response right to to innovations you're seeing abroad, not only in China but TSMC and Samsung. How much how much of the market share that they they hold and how many of U.S. chips have to go through those kind of critical points. You know, I think it is a, it is one of those things where as a technology person, it's great that innovation is happening across the world. We do want global innovations. I think in general, everyone doing well is good, right? From a technology development, exploration, discovery perspective. On the other hand, I think looking at what you know, China wants to do in terms of becoming a, a self-sustained, self-independent entity, I think that's, we do need to try to understand, you know, how that how that strategy might impact where the U.S. is. Well, it's important to look at that this is the way that they're doing things aren't, isn't anything new, right? We've been in a situation with when with Japan, right, in the early 80s and their rise in semiconductors and then later in Korea. Both of them actually took a very similar roadmap uh, to get to where they are. And will mean that they really started with memory. And so Japan, the Japanese kind of uh, semiconductor industry really looked at, hey, what, if we want to get into this thing called microelectronics semiconductors, what, what should we start with first? And you know, memory ended up being one of the things that they started out doing first. By the way, Intel did that as well, because it's one of those kind of easier things to do. Memory cells, you stamp them out over and over and over again. So the process is not as difficult, but it gives one the ability to learn about, okay, this is what I need to do. This is the things that I need to do to like increase yield and, and, and performance and things like that. And you saw the Japanese uh, industry use that as a stepping stone to get better and wiser at this process. And now, you know, that to get to where they are. The Koreans have done the kind of similar thing, used memory as a stepping stone. If you look at Chinese kind of facility investments, a lot like we, we look at the HSMCs and maybe the SMIC, the UMC type, you know, investments, but we, really a lot of them is actually in, in legacy old, you know, facilities to do memory. Yeah. A lot of it is just like memory stuff. And, and so you really have to think that, yes, they have this shiny object that they're really trying to tout and say, hey, we're really top, but 
at the same time, there is a big push also just to make sure that we they understand the technology and they could get uh, the basic, which is the memory part down. Sure. There are a lot of ways I think we should be thinking from an innovation point of view on how to, what should we do in, in terms of that strategy? And, and we could share about the things that we, we think sure. that the U.S. can be investing yeah. in. Yeah, before, before we turn to your policy uh, proposals, it, it's interesting to think that given the way... Sorry. It's interesting to think that like China, yes, like they're working on memory, but they also have been able to create world-class design firms like HiSilicon and, and, and Huami and whatnot. And that was not really a path that was necessarily available in the 80s or 90s, which you can like start working at a very different part of the supply chain at the same time as you're building out your manufacturing processes. Yeah, that's right. And let's look at a recent plot of private equity investments in China. And everyone, everyone thinks about the supply chain side of them making physical stuff, but I believe it was more about 60% of the private equity is actually going to fabulous companies in China yeah. and, and 20% is going to actually the manufacturing. So they, they are actually pushing into making sure design because that's where the value, that's higher up the value chain, right? If you look at where the U.S. is, the top fabulous companies are U.S. companies, right? Think of the Qualcomm, the Broadcoms. They don't, they use other facilities to, to manufacture physical chips, but the, the IP is what, where they make the money on. And that's, a, that's been a model that's worked. And I work, I say worked in, in the, with an asterisk because although that success of that model in the last maybe you know, 10, 10, 15 years has created some of these large companies, you've seen the fruits of that right now, right? Where an over-reliance on this kind of fabulous model has also really allowed us to relinquish a lot of our manufacturing capabilities. And if we, you know, one can argue, if we kept what we were doing and, and injected with support early on, we wouldn't be in the situation we are now where we have to probably spend a lot more money and then training and workforce and all that stuff to bring to bring that innovation back. So, so there is something to be said about having a balanced, healthy uh, ecosystem rather than a kind of more lopsided one, even though from the efficiency point of view, that might be, it might make sense. Yeah, and we're recording this on April 9th, three days before the leading lights of the U.S. semiconductor ecosystem depend on the White House to talk about the chip, chip shortage and the need to fund the CHIPS Act and whatnot. The biggest ticket item that came out of that that legislation was money, which is likely going to go to support fab construction in the U.S. And you and some of your colleagues at InQtel put on a really interesting paper that pointed to some other parts of the innovation pipeline, which the current way that Congress is thinking about spending money doesn't directly address. So maybe before we talk about the the recommendations in particular, why don't you walk through the sort of like stages that go from research all the way to to PE investment and, and IPO in the in the chip space and where you what you think is missing in the American context. Sure. Yeah. I think we think of this commercialization pipeline is really starting out with key innovation, key research. And that has to do a lot with a lot of US funding for you know, basic R&D, right? And and that we should say has been stagnant and or by and in some I say even has dropped as in relation to where China is doing and investing. I think China might be even um, surpassing us within this decade in terms of R&D kind of R&D um, dollars for research. I think that really starts off a lot of this, a lot of innovation. And then you have kind of organizations like the DARPAs and NSFs and DOE, Office of Science, that really fund a lot of the, at least from the microelectronics side. And some of that, some of the research that for what companies would call pre-competitive research, right? This is basic research on how do you build a semiconductor? What are the new materials we should be looking at? Those are all kind of important things as we look at the future. Then you get to, you know, when you have, in your past, if you're used to it government jargon, you have you pass the, the, the BAA stage, right? These broad and agency announcements, which, you know, these for grants and such. And you could get to the point where, okay, maybe I should, as a small company, I'm, I'm using research from, let's say, an NSF or a DARPA kind of grant that I got maybe a few years ago. I'm ready to you know, turn, in, turn this into a company 
And this, and then that's like a weird kind of transition point. And it's actually a, a point that we think is, is there's actually quite a big gap. And in fact, if I should just uh, take a pause here and, and mention that Incutel is, as, as an organization is not just, we don't just do investments. We actually have much, uh, several different divisions that, that actually look at part of this supply chain or this commercialization pipeline. One of them is a new group that we just started called Emerge, which actually looks at how do we help our fundamental R&D get out of the lab and into the commercial sector. And so let's put putting that in context. So let's say I am a researcher at a, a, a federal research lab, right? When our discussions with some of those commercialization directors, a lot of them say, hey, the biggest gap right now for us is actually not not as much resources in terms of funding, although they probably, after now you said that, they'll probably say, no, we want more money. <laughs> but a lot of it is actually just human capital, right? They actually need the right people to help guide these companies. The, the, the greatest number, they said, of companies that didn't make it are the ones that didn't even start. Mm. And what I mean is a lot of these, you know, innovation research researchers, hey, I just maybe patented this really cool thing. But man, looking at how am I going to take that out of the lab? I need to take a pause out of my career. I need to do all these things. I'm not sure I'm ready to take the leap or I don't think I have the resources to allow me to do that. And therefore, I'm just going to keep that on the shelf, right? I'm not going to, to, to mess around with it. And so that if you, if you take that context, we're actually losing a lot of innovation because we perhaps are not supporting these researchers on how do you do business formation or the legal implications? How do I find a mentor that knows, let's say, semiconductors well enough, right? There's probably a lot of, there are a lot of mentors and accelerators that do software. Yeah, I was about to say, right? yeah, let's stay on that for a second. Like, I am sure this is not a problem in the computer science PhD ecosystem. There are hundreds yeah. of VCs running around those labs trying to get these folks right. to start startups. Exactly. So what is it about the hardware space in particular that means that you have to have InQtel, not a, not a fully private company, fill fill this gap yeah yeah and we we actually spoke to a lot of these incubators tech stars and you know y combinator and in, you're right a lot of them are they're known for SaaS products and software software products and a lot of their entrepreneurs and residents and mentors come from that ilk and then so when they see a physics-based kind of company that's hey we're doing this nano crystal thing they feel like I could maybe help you on talking to some a lawyer or like a guy to get a loan. But in terms of how you should formulate your company and which direction to take the technology, you really need a subject matter expert. The, you just don't have as many of those people. And I think it's not overnight thing. It's been a, a long standing shift, right? When you, and from the venture community of moving away from hardware. And when you move away from hardware, you get people who just are, are leaving that field, right? The expertise is dwindling to the workforce that, that you need to, to do that. Uh, you just don't have those as many of those people. They exist, just not as many of them uh, as you have in software. And it's very hard to to start a company. And what, I should make a plug for companies like Silicon Catalyst in the Bay Area. Those are seasoned veterans in the semiconductor industry. They've been around for a while and have been and are helping companies in the semiconductor space with access to certain tools and and networking and things like that. There's also Elon Gurr's organization, Select Cyclotron Road, that helps organization that helps the Folks in the research labs, the government research labs meet and live in the Bay Area so that they could actually start to figure out how to turn their hard tech kind of innovation to something. So there are groups that do that, right? Uh, but there are few and far between and much less, you know, well-funded than the really big kind of organization that most folks are, uh, you know, are familiar so, with. So um, in the, the this paper I came out recently, I, I wrote with Danny and Chris recently on Labs for Fabs. We had a whole section on labor 
development and as a an, an electrical engineering PhD, I'm sure at some point in your career it crossed your mind that like life might have been a lot easier and uh, more lucrative had you gone down the computer science path. Do you have any thoughts more broadly on education policy or the way the aside from this stuff, just like more like broader things on getting folks more interested in pursuing careers in this the it's pretty dramatic when you look at the numbers of how much what what percentage like immigrant first generation immigrants fill up the uh, the, the graduate programs in the u.s when it comes to like electrical engineering yeah yeah it, it, that is very true and, it, and when i was in in grad school i actually started a, a whole course series on like engineering an engineering course on how to get folks who are non-engineers to think like an engineer so like the engineering design cycle and part of it was was kind of saying hey there's like you said, there's lot, not a lot of folks that are getting into this field and getting their hands dirty making stuff anymore. What can we be doing? The way that we did it was a more of a community-based approach. And by no means am I the one that innovated it. I, I took a lot from from the, the TIES program at UCSD. And they took this program. It was Duke that a lot of in Purdue. And a lot of those organizations and universities have been thinking about how do we invent, how do we make a more human face to engineering? And that I think in the past, folks would be like, you can make a bunch of money. If you were, if you are an engineer or a software developer or something like that, but if you look, talk to the the folks, the kids today that are in this field, that's not the main driving motivator, right? A lot of folks want to make a difference, especially in the context and in the environment we are today, right? There's a lot of need for for change and actually impact, and that's something that they're looking for more. I think we could be, you know, taking taking a cue from them and saying, look, there's a way to use engineering as a way to impact community. So what we did was work with local nonprofits. So this was a, a, a local zoo in Santa Barbara. And we say, hey, what is your problem? Can I get engineering students to help you solve a technical problem? And let's let's uh, let's get some uh, you know funding from the local community to do that. And actually, they have a little kitty ride that's like a zoo, a train. And sometimes the train actually derails, which is scary, right, from the heat. <laughs> um, so we had engineers say, hey, let's how do we actually put a monitor on that and monitor that and have like tele metrics to say to the maintenance staff, hey, this rail is actually starting to increase because of the weather, the, the heat. Let's preventively maintenance. That's something that I think is kind of neat because you're helping a community and you're practicing your skills. And along the way, you're going to learn about, hey, what chip should I use to do this? Like, how do I actually do this telemetrics? And maybe I could be using this information down the line in my career. So you know, I think having the human face involving the community is is one way one way to do it. And I think we need to stop saying how much money we'll be making because I, I don't think that is the right motivator for anyone who wants to get into this field. Yeah, I, w- I was not expecting us to to end up on zoo trolley trains when we started this conversation, but it's a really interesting angle because competing on you know, just given the way that software scales and the sort of nature of the industry, like it's going to be hard to match the salaries out of college that you can make as an electrical engineer versus one you could make as a computer scientist. I just read, I'm doing an interview this afternoon with uh, a guy who wrote the story, like the early, wrote up the early story of, of SpaceX and book, like the level of like the level, like how much cooler is it to build fucking rocket ships than, than a recommendation algorithm. And I think that's something that when the sort of advanced manufacturing universe in the U S disappears, like miss that of building real things is actually incredible and magical in a way that algorithms are cool also, but there's something different and tactile. And with material, like material science, which is something we're going to talk about in a little bit, is just so unbelievably fundamental in a way that the innovations of the past 20 years of the internet, of the consumer, of consumer internet just aren't. 
And there's something really exciting and special about that. And I think Elon Musk, for all of his faults, is a incredibly uh, powerful example of how big an impact on the world you can have doing real hardware. And hopefully, I'm, I'm sure he hasn't. Ha- the movie hasn't been made about him yet. But like, wh- whenever it will be, it'll be much more exciting than The Social Network, to be sure. Yeah, I, th- I think that's to me that's a, a a great reason why we should make sure that we're supporting fundamental research because it, you know who's funding some of the early stuff that SpaceX was doing NASA and, and government organizations so much like how the U.S. microelectronics industry started from uh, Defense Department funding and and so again I think. We, we can't lose sight of the beginning of this pipeline is fundamental research. And then those, those research programs out of NMF, NSF, DARPA, NS, you know, NASA, DOE are the ones that touch the students first, not us. The, they're the ones that go down to the undergraduate and graduate level that get folks excited. And then those these are programs that have high school students come in and see the research that, you know, uh, these guys are, you know, guys and gals are doing to get folks excited about pr- pursuing a career in science and, and engineering. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think there's a large government component in, in terms of the research community that's involved in that. Coming off of that, Yen, the sort of nature of Moore's law has led firms to think in the an 18 to 24 month horizon, because it, within a relatively short time frame, you have innovations in science, which like totally break the paradigm and whatever you were making is obsolete and like way less valuable than it was before. So given that nowadays we're seeing Moore's law slow down and those horizons and those timelines between nodes increasingly expand and become, you know, way more expensive, what role should the US government have in trying to rejigger the the timelines and horizons of industry to better to better line up with the new technological paradigm that we're increasingly going to be uh, stuck in? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. And I could answer probably in two different ways. I'll maybe start in the, the micro and then come go up to the macro and hopefully link it to the infrastructure kind of this debate we're having right now. And uh, I'm going to speak just maybe just on my little wheelhouse, which is the microelectronics. Obviously, there's you know a lot more we could be talking about in terms of this topic. It, well, it's first that we should recognize that making a semiconductor facility and, and the fabrication of that is is a very wasteful process, right? It's a, a subtractive process, meaning you, you're really just removing semiconductors using nasty chemicals and things like that and to get the parts that you want. And there's partially a reason why a lot of those facilities actually left the United States. Let's not forget that the what we call DOE Superfund sites, right? These are super contaminated sites. One of the largest density of uh, Superfund sites is in Cal- Northern California, where there's some early semiconductor facilities are. And so the, that is, there's a reason why I think with lax re- environmental regulations and things in other countries that facilities thought, okay, why don't we just move those over there? We pay less and we don't have to worry about cleanup. And so we have to reckon with that we were exporting not only some of the know-how, but also a lot of the the, the waste as well. So I think that's you know, to the true point. Like it is, we do want to make sure that we are more, if we're getting a second shot at this, that we're more mindful of the environment regulations, environmental kind of harm that could be done. And let's plan for that ahead of time to be more sustainable. And so using sustainability in an environmental context here. But at, at the same time, from a technological point of view, instead of making chips that you throw throw the whole thing away, there is this idea of now of um, modularity. It's coming back, right? We've done modularity m- m- many different times in the past. Now that we, we've been on this binge of saying like the whole chip itself is going to be shrunk better and better, and we focus all of our attention on the chip itself. As we're looking at the, the end of that road, a lot of folks are looking at what was called advanced packaging as a way to protect potentially and not to reuse, not re, redo everything, but we can reuse components. What I mean by that is what if I just make a chip for 5G and make just that 5G portion and then I put it on the shelf and say, I'm going to reuse that part later. And then I have a memory 
chip and said, okay, I'm going to have a, a, a big set of memory chips and I'm going to use that at a, at a different time and put it together like Lego blocks instead of having to say, all right, I, this one design, I'm going to combine everything together and bake it and it's going to be hard baked and that's it. And then you find out a year from now, oh, standard changed. I just throw the whole chip away and start all over again. With a more modular approach, you say, okay, the standard changed. I can't use this memory block anymore. That's okay. I have another one on the shelf. I'm going to plug it in. And hopefully I can reuse the other parts of the chip, the, the fabric, the base, and everything like that. And that that's the constant. That's a thought, at least, because of that more modularity. And the challenge now is how do we make that modularity perform better than if you were just to do the Moore's Law approach, because I think that's still a key driver, a key metric is, is performance. So there are many different ways in the advanced manufacturing that kind of push people are doing to do that in terms of interposers and embedded bridges that you can make sure that you're doing your high-speed communications and so forth. But so that it is one way I, that I'm looking at it. On the, the larger front, I think when you're looking at infrastructure, you know, I think we have a good opportunity to look at how expensive it is to actually rebuild new and it might be better to just maintain along the way. And I think there's a really good opportunity for embedding smart sensors to help with that process. Can we detect cracks? And there's, there are ways to use the fiber optics to, to look at stress fractures and things like that along really long runs of tunnels and bridges. Can we make, make a little smarter kind of investment in some of the smaller sensors so that our larger infrastructure is well-maintained? That's another way of looking at sustainability and maybe how microelectronics can be part of that in this larger context. Coming back to the discussion of where the innovation pipeline is stuck in the U.S., one of the proposals that Incutel is pushing forward is the need for a U.S. investment fund. Why is that? Why, why do you think, of all the billions of dollars that U.S. could could be spending on chips, why do you think this makes this makes more sense, especially relative to the the checks that are probably going to go out to Intel and Global Foundries in the you know foreseeable future? Yeah, yeah. In, in this case, we're really thinking about a fund that. Is, is helping the little guys, right? The small startups, not the large companies. I think they have, they're okay by themselves. So it's going back to this, this idea that in, in this innovation pipeline, there's a lot of kind of inputs that one needs, right? the resources. And, and one of them we discussed was R&D funding. And, and we established that, look, that has been stagnant. And then one of the, that being one of the key funding resources that a lot of companies have used in the past to get to a point of commercial aid, or, you know, pre-commercialization is are, you know, those are those kind of grants. Another area of actual of investment post that is the venture funding, right? By no means is that the only one. There are loans and other things that one can do. What we're talking about today is more about the venture community and U.S. venture firms in the hardware section, especially in semiconductor tools and maybe like the, the non-AI chips, the more currently unsexy kind of chip designs. They are not receiving the, the investments from the community, right? As, as you've mentioned, they've there's a, there's a big push towards movement towards software. And then the, the ones that are left in hardware really pick the prize bunches of the litter. And, and then you, the ones that are left over, the, they're so good technologies, but you just don't see the funding necessarily for growth. And then the third kind of things that we're looking at is, is that the U.S. has actually restricted a lot of foreign investments. So in the past, a lot of foreign co- entities have invested in U.S. In innovation because a lot of the innovation does uh, start and originate in the United States and companies in China, like China, have invested in those. But with the, with the, there's recent restrictions such as CFIUS that has restricted that. That's another kind of source of revenue or of, of capital that companies are are not receiving. We could argue whether or not that's a good or a bad thing, but I think it's more it's more important to really just recognize that as a reality. That is one thing that they're contending with. So then the second question is that what do we do about it? So yeah, so well, let's talk about sort of CFIUS and the second order effects, and then come back to the what an investment fund could do to try to ameliorate them. 
With these three kind of areas of lack of funding from different resources, where we, we think is that there's, there's a need for these companies to, to be successful. There's a lot of, we've already identified these technologies that have just not gotten government funding, when yet the technologies is important to national security, right? There, there's important to actually technology, technological development. And if there are kind of discussions with a lot of larger, large tech companies, they said that, look, we actually invest in funds outside of the United States. These kind of these more sovereign, you can think of them sovereign wealth funds. I think like in Taiwan, there's ITRI, right? They're Taiwan's institute to, to support the semiconductor industry there. They have a fund that they use to support some of the startups and businesses there. Korea has one for, for their companies. And in Belgium, if we're IMEC, which is a semiconductor fa- fabrication facility that's open to, to global use, they have a their own fund to help support those technologies. So there are examples, and there's other types of examples, but I, the point here is that the companies we've talked to, the U.S.-based large corporations with strategic investment arms, they say, look, we deploy our dollars globally across these things because we could, we see innovation potentially coming out from Taiwan or Korea or Belgium or wherever. But the, the opportunities to use those same dollars in the U.S. is limited. If not, there's none. And the, our argument is, why don't we have something large enough where we could deploy against some of those key national security kind of interests and better tools for semiconductors for preparing ourselves for the new wave of, of post-Moore's law semiconductor equipment that's going to be needed. Do we, what kind of, how we should be set up, we should be setting ourselves up so that we have the capital to be able to do that and the, and the people ready to do that. We just don't see that there. And so we say that's one of our recommendations that we think the U.S. needs something like that. I think this is going to, to CFIUS, right? This you can be on foreign investments in the U.S. And so this is a multi-government agency committee that literally looks at mergers, acquisitions, things of that at a certain dollar amount, right? So these are typically it was at the larger dollar amounts of and making sure that U.S. companies aren't getting you know, undue influence because of, of certain merger acquisitions by a foreign entity, and specifically certain entities like you know, Russia and China, things like that. From a lot of the startups point of view, like, that it, the process is a little opaque. They don't know when if you're going to be part of you know, part of that CFIUS review, and if you're in a technology kind of space that might be encroaching on something that they're interested in, Definitely things that we've heard is that literally everything. Yeah, it's it's a, and it's partially just because we don't know. They don't have an idea of what that might be, and so you guys can think of that as a kind of like a tax that that then investors say, well, there's risk now. There's a little higher risk, so then we're going to take a higher evaluate or t- higher, you know, equity stake or something like that. So from the co-founder, from the founder's point of view, that it's not great. But by the same time, look, it, we do need some type of those protections. It's just that one of the the unintended consequences is that we are the policies right now is all stick, right? You can't do this, you can't, you can't fund, you can't, you know, get this money or you can't do that. And what ha- what happens is that with all these barriers that are just constructed for these start- startups, they're looking around for funding, and a lot of some of the U.S. Invest- investors say, look, we don't want to touch this. Sorry, we can't invest with you. And then and what's left is a Chinese says, look, why don't you just start up, shut everything down and start a shell company and then give me your IP. We'll give you, we'll give you a much lower, we'll buy it on the cheap, but at least we get some money off of it. You get your investment back. And, and reluctantly, we've seen companies do that, right? Like they love this technology. They think it needs to survive and do something. And there's always a hope that maybe if we just give it a little more dollars and give it some more love it will come back in, 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 in a great way. But really what, what happens is that the Chinese are, are in, and most of the Chinese, as, as they have the money, they're able to get this on the cheap. And let's not forget, a lot of these technologies had, because of this pipeline we're talking about, had a long history of maybe U.S. R&D funding, right? So this could be tunes of millions of dollars that they've gotten to get this technology to the point where they are now. And so not only are we losing technology, but we've subsidized R&D for a foreign entity. And so 
you know, that, that kind of the unintended consequences. And what we're saying is that like a bit back to the investment idea is that why don't we have a carrot along with the stick, right? So if these are, if we all agree that this is an important technology, right, important enough to block and then it should be important enough to protect and important enough to support. And I think that is the thing that we're really missing right now is that, okay, we said that this is so important that we're going to block it. How are we going to make sure that we, we give it the resources to to survive. And to be fair to Cepheus, the committee doesn't have that power, right? We There's no entity right now that can say, let's inject some funds, right? This is a, a very kind of difficult situation. Probably requires a lot of phone calls from different entities to figure out which vehicles can we use. And as folks who know government, it's a tall order to really ask for. And and this is not just, we don't do this you know every day. This is, there could be hundreds of companies, right? Like in this, especially as the bar for Cepheus has actually gone lower, that they've got the expansion of that strengthening of Cepheus is actually opened up the aperture more that I think we're, we're come to the point where, okay, where are the carrots and how do we actually make sure that there's a, a, a suitable, sustainable mechanism to give these carrots, not just say that which they should be supported, but that there potentially is a fund that they tap into from after review that, Hey, okay, we said you can't take this funding here. Some to get, get, to get started. And by the way, that could help ease a lot of the risk from the U.S. venture side, say, okay, if they're going to get funding from this organization, I see that there's going to be government support for it. It's not going to go away. The, we've, the government, in a sense, have bought down risk. Mm-hmm. And that would help invigorate and at least get some more of the U.S. venture folks back into the game. And, and so I think what we really need to show is that we're going to take the leap and that we understand the pain points. So let's alleviate those. Another one of the ideas which you guys proposed was this idea of a microelectronics sandbox. Why is this so important, particularly if you're trying to support new, crazy, non-silicon or yeah. post-silicon materials research? I think that the point here is this is the, one of the key differentiators that we talked about from software to hardware. In hardware, you have to make something, right? You can't, you can't go hat in hand and say, hey, this is a, a, a sketch I put on a napkin of a chip. Uh, now I need $10 million to make this chip. And, and so for, for many hardware investments, you really need to show an early prototype. Some type of what we call tape outs, where when basically you send the design out to the fab. And you need to get to some milestone. Usually it's a tape out or engineering samples. That can be expensive. And if you're, especially if you're a startup that you're going to be designing at 16 nanometers or even 7 nanometers, that could be millions of dollars that you, that you need to, to do that. And so there's a need to have a ability to kind of pro- to prototype, to actually make some of these things to help buy down risk. That's one. That two is that all too often a lot of a lot of researchers, again, they're taking new government funding or researching the new semiconductor equipment, are using like research-based tools. Some of these tools, I've been guilty of this when I was in grad school, like kludged together. Like I've literally built together my tools. Like no way is that going to when I say, hey, I got this to work, and I go to yeah, applied materials or or any facilities, like hey, this is what happened. They're like, we got to start all over because we don't. That's not a that's not a manufacturable process, <laughs> and that that is. All too often is what happens and it's, it's amusing and yet it's kind of sad because that means we start all over again. And potentially like maybe the cool thing that discovered, it, it really needs to be, it's not as cool anymore once you go into any manufacturing you know, process because of some, some process that happens. So the, what we're trying to say here is that translating research into actual you know, tech transfer capabilities requires that they're using, we're, we're talking the same language, using the same tools. And so we want to make sure that researchers have a facility and access to commercial grade tools and like a commercial grade process flow so that well, they're actually not wasting time, right? Not wasting developing a unique thing that's unique to their lab, but developing something that actually can be easily transferable to a, 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 a company go down, down the line. That would immensely help the solution transfer kind of IP transfer kind of process and makes that, that innovation a lot more worthwhile and efficiency. It's more about making sure that's efficient. What do you think about 
the sort of qualitative as well as quantitative differences of how an implied ventures or an Intel capital think about spending money in this space as opposed to what Incutel does? In the past, they were actually, they spent a lot of money actually on on tools and equipment and, and things like that. And my, my my partner in crime here, Eileen Tangha, who is the, one of the co-authors on the paper we wrote, she's our, the investment partner that, that I work with. And we both do a lot of our microelectronics investments. Formerly, she was at uh, Applied Materials in the venture office there. And I, I would do what, what she says. And I think a lot of you know, a lot of times you know, those organizations have traditionally been supportive. But if you look at the number of um, these strategic investment firms that are investing in hardware have actually dwindled. And, and now there's only a handful of them. And even some of those are very selective on what they're investing in. And I think it, you, if you talk to the Intel Capital guys, they would say that they probably are, are trying to move up the value chain and, and you know looking for more solutions, right? And rather than these point in technologies. I'm hopeful that with, with relative to, to Intel, like with Pat uh, Gelsinger's announcement of their new strategy, that that they're maintaining the, the ability to actually manufacture as part of their kind of roadmap, that the, understa- the understanding that there's a need for co-design, right? That um, designing a chip and understanding how it's made is important to actually making a really good product. That mentality would go into this, their idea of what investments we should be making. And hopefully a lot of that will translate into an increase in, in hardware investments. But at, at currently, I think one of the challenges that we're seeing, again, to motivate why we need a, a fund is the fact that there aren't many U.S. investors in this space, even the ones you think should be in this space. The NCSA, Bob Work and Eric Schmidt got together, wrote 800 pages about AI in all its permutations and what the U.S. government should do about it. There was a microelectronics chapter, which the main takeaway for me was trying to keep China at least two nodes behind the world's latest and greatest, as well as other recommendations. Sorry, I'm curious for your thoughts on that recommendation as well as others in that document. Sure, yeah. And I think in general, I thought that you're thinking about what they're, they're looking at AI, but I thought they took a really good tact and broadened it into all the things that would impact and support kind of AI. There's not just a software thing and that there's a large hardware component. A lot of the new AI algorithms are going to be really dependent on hardware accelerators and you see a lot of money going into new chips to actually accelerate some of these these new models and algorithms and that even with that the growth of algorithms and ai have outpaced hardware development so uh, there's an interesting open ai showed like a, gra- a very interesting graph of the model complexity of these algorithms versus Moore's law. You have kind of at best 2x growth right in your performance of whereas i think uh, the ai models are going like 7x growth and so no way are we going to be able to do the things that we are programming on traditional hardware and that we do need some new hardware platforms to be able to do that. I think what, there's, what they're suggesting in terms of supporting and looking at new hardware, absolutely, definitely true. I think that the ideas of, in terms of the national US-centric view of in what we should be doing, looking at new new architectures, I think is very important. Looking at advanced packaging, which they said is important. And I think some of the things like 3D stacking, which is, we consider that as part of the advanced packaging of how do we put chips together better, not just on a plane, but let's say we we'll stack it up on top and, and use a third dimension to even get better performance. There's a lot of options to doing that. Well, I, I just want to say to our listeners who've made it this far, please, <laughs> I hope you guys pause and Google all of the terms that Yen has, has thrown over the course of this conversation, because all of these things are just like very confusing and fascinating. I would recommend YouTube actually as a way to, as a first stop to get your head around these, this new technology, like seeing it in 
visual form of what 3D packaging actually means as someone who was a history major and took took quantum physics for non-science majors in college. This was a starting to wrap my head all around around all this is a real challenge. And I think you're seeing you're certainly seeing the kind of growing pains of this. If you think it's hard for senators to understand how what Facebook's business model is, the microelectronics ecosystem and and supply chain is levels and levels more more complicated than understanding that Facebook sells ads. I guess this is a question. Yen, you've spent time on the Hill. What do you think is, what advice do you have for, you know, the Senate staffer out there who is trying to be smart about supporting an industry which is outrageously complicated and needs PhDs to to do a lot of it. I think the danger is you try to do a universal solution, that you take it all in. And I would rather see that offices really take what parts of this that are more relevant to like what their you know, their bosses are champions of and, and then using that as a way to support the this um, movement maybe is the, is the right word because I think there's because of how complex the whole system is right this, there's a danger of trying to do it all at, at once rather than what for instance for offices that are supportive of increasing federal funding for research you know, areas I would say you should be different looking to is like new materials research let's start doing that because the current system that we have right now is all developed around uh, silicon you know all the tools all facilities but by no means is silicon the best material there's other semiconductors out there and in fact if we were going to go into an EV future you know, ones like gallium nitrite, silicon carbide are, are important ones to be looking into. I mean, let's make sure the U.S. is is leading in development of those material. And oh, by the way, the U.S. is a leading um, manufacturer of tools. And those tools will be essential to getting to operationalizing those materials. Working from a position of strength, leveraging our, our, our ability to do that in these new material groups could keep our adversaries on their toes instead of saying, hey, we just spent billions of dollars on the silicon fab. Ah, got to start over again and now make a silicon gallium nitride fab or something like that. So I think, so that's one area that I would, if you were, if we were to support like R&D research, let's do that. For the ones that are looking to like entrepreneurship and like competitiveness, let's, I would welcome your support on strengthening that commercialization pipeline. Let's look at different ways that we're going to help entrepreneurs within federal labs to, you know, get the resources they need to, 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 commercialize their, their products. And I think what we've been doing with Emerge, I think, is one step towards that. There's other players involved, of course. And finally, I think ones that are looking at a larger strategy of how we should be dealing with foreign investments in this kind of age where it's not just the government, federal-funded research that's we're competing for ideas, but venture capital, private sector, private equity, and also from the Chinese kind of mixed-use military-civil fusion. We need to have our own weapons. And I think support for a, a investment fund is one of those key tools we should have in that toolbox and support for that. So I think there's some offices that really can get hopefully get behind kind of those ideas. I think I just also just want to to say that in the context of also those like recent anti-Asian you know, hate crimes and, and things like that, we should also keep in context and, and hold space for complexity here because we're talking about a lot of times, if it wasn't clear in this podcast, we were talking about China a lot of times and what they're doing and having the, is sometimes the language can be adversarial and somewhat hawkish. And then we should be able to hold space for complexity. Yes, they are competing with us in many different things. We should be able to to fight with them on the idea, the best ideas, in order to to make sure that we get the future that we want, and also punish them on things like what they're doing to with the Uyghurs and punishing of, of them, and make hold them accountable for 
things that they're doing that are against kind of uh, what we think is important for human rights. At the same time, recognize some of the language that are, you know, that about the Kung flu and anti-Chinese sentiment does trickle down to a lot of the folks here, many of the engineers and the folks developing in technology and industry. And that can result in this, you know, kind of situations that we're having right now. So just want to make sure that folks hold that space for that complexity, that we can be both. We can recognize that they are adversaries in certain aspects, but we also need to cooperate with them on climate change, you know, on global health in the midst of this pandemic. There's rooms for diplomacy and rooms to work together. And as peoples, we that with a you know large diaspora, not just in China, but larger Asian American community, it gets gets affected, and we don't want that to get wrapped up in this whole hawkish anti-China sentiment. So that is, I think, as I'm talking about technology, I think it's important to talk about how that affects the people and societies in both sides of the pond yeah, as well. Th- thanks for that, Yan. It's the the sort of vision. Like earlier in this conversation, you put on your like as a technologist hat, and. It would be really great if more people could put on that technologist hat and see that there are common global issues where technology is going to be useful. And yes, the U.S. probably doesn't want. We just saw new export controls on a on a company that's like making missile technology. And clearly, there's going to be a line with all of this. But there's also like a ton of global problems that technology is going to have, like. Chinese graduate students coming to the U.S. and like having a good experience here and not feeling like they're going to walk out on the street and be beaten up. The humanity will have a far better 20th century if we're able to continue having the sort of academic and you know commercial exchanges that the, the U.S. and China have been able to to enjoy since since reform and opening and keeping that sort of perspective in mind that there are like other global challenges that like sort of technology can solve. And it's not always about making sure that your supply chain is hardened from from China or whatever. That's not always the number one priority. Keeping that perspective is really important. And I think a frame that folks should keep in mind as the sort of like new Cold War dynamics seem to spin up left and right. And we have China bills and, and politicians really seeing no downside from framing everything as like a let's beat China context. And thanks so much for coming on China Talk. Just play, 
全身都充满了力量，虽然没成长的臂膀，但我却充满了希望。I'm so dope， 只要是限量版，我全都有。米其林餐厅的冰淇淋够，大把的 cash 都握在我手，等我显摆把别人的 flow。装作一下，我就是未来行业里面的领袖。秀英华，我就是旋律派最屌的 CEO。没有理由不要谈现在，我们永远谈以后。自我依旧，等着笑我是最大的后继之秀。自由是我带去的那 I can ride， I'm g o w a y 那么 gang gang。戴上耳机，麦克风对准我 ，I l e v e t o u 一点 bang bang。要么疯到一个地方，再让朋友把一点照片。你还是不知道 ，rap star 原来就生活在你的身边。Real d o w real shit， I'm low， 我只是随便玩玩而已。卡西欧，我们先告诉麦学学我的传达如何得力。只是随便玩玩吧 ，just play。我是一个门外汉 ，just play。让我找个代币先 ，just play。听我的腔调如何 ，just play。